All right, we're rolling, rolling, rolling. Down the hill, I'm rolling. Bowling? The dude All right. Bides. Hello? My name is Mr. White. Mm-hmm. And with uh, me today... Mr. Fuchsia. Mrs. Pink. Okay, well, pink was in the movie, so... Pink. I guess so was white. Yeah, is that's the why. color of the... What do you guys think on tipping waitresses? Uh, do, do it. it. Do yeah. it. Do it. What's up, gamers? Hi, gamers. Welcome back. Welcome to Gaming Hour. On uh, this week, mm-hmm. today we'll be talking about the directorial debut of Mr. Uh, all right, Tarantino. All right, but I thought it was fitting that last time I did a Spike Lee movie and uh, Spike Lee and Quentin Tarantino feud, not, feud with each other. Do not so like each other. They got beef. Here is the other one now. So look at that. Well, My, uh, hey Miles, hey Miles, what? What have you seen recently? Oh my God, I was going to ask you what you've seen recently. Well, I asked you first. All right. Well, I guess I'll be faster next no time. No one asked me. I, Stefan. Stefan, what have you seen? No. I don't want to No, go hold around. on. Oh. Don't do this, Stefan. It's not all about you. There's three people in this podcast. I'm part of this podcast, okay? No, Stefan, what did you watch? Oh, okay. I'll go. Uh, I watched many things, but I'll talk about Okja. We watched Okja. Oh, yeah. Is it a Bong Joon-ho film? Bong, Bong is that the one with like the weird hippopotamus thing? Pig thing, yeah. Okay. It's on Netflix. Um, not my favorite of his. I I always see the trailer for it, and I'm always like, eh. Yeah. So the the setup is like it's a future world where they've developed these genetic animals to be the new like livestock for the world to solve hunger because like they you don't need to feed them as much. They have less like ecological footprint. Whatever, but they like give a bunch of them to pe- farmers around the world as like a publicity stunt, and so you follow the farmers that are in Korea. And this little girl like grew up with this one, and it's like the biggest one because you know it was raised with love and whatever. And uh, then the company comes and takes the pig, and it's her just like trying to get it back. It's uh, like like Charlotte's Web. It's, but- it's comedic. It has some very strange performances in it, uh, most notably Jake Gyllenhaal. And in Tilda it. Swinton. Jake and I was going to say, Jake Gyllenhaal's in it, Tilda Swinton, Paul Dano. Uh, the guy who plays Roderick from Diary of a Wimpy Kid? Yeah. Wait, this is, but it's supposed to Steven, be Korean, right? Steven Yoon. Uh, well, it's, no. it's supposed to be in Korea. It Part of it is set place in Korea. In Korea. Oh, okay. so and there, then they move is, it to the US. Yeah. Ah, I see. So I'd say like one third of it is subtitled. The rest okay. is like in English. Um, yeah, Jake Gyllenhaal does, where he's always wearing like short shorts and he's like, he kind of talks in like a high-pitched voice and goes... <laughs> And he does like that. Very weird. Yeah, I don't know. There's parts I felt were slow parts. But overall, it's kind of exactly what you expected it to be in the sense that it's just like a the animal industry is bad. Yeah. Which it is. But you know. That's not... why I only eat other humans. I'm vegan, yeah. so I got the message. Anyway, Miles, what, what about you? I watched. Uh, I don't know what year it came out. But I watched Dread. Mm. The newer of the Judge Dread movies, yes, uh, very similar. If you've seen Raid, the yeah. Raid, right? Because the new one is the second Raid is Raid Redemption. 
If you've seen Raid, it's a lot like that. Uh, Basically, Judge Dredd and uh, this girl that he is testing to see if she can be a good judge go into like a... They're like cops. Yeah. Like judge, jury, executioner kind of cops, though. Mm. Um, So they go into this like massive apartment complex tower thing, like post-apocalyptic. Well, not post-apocalyptic, but like shitty future... (laughs) <laughs> kind of yeah. style uh, and then they have to fight and murder their way up to the very top where the drug lord is and then yeah. kill him it was good it was yeah. pretty much what I wanted from a Judge Dredd movie yeah just him being a cold hearted motherfucker shooting people Where what are you watching what's, what's on the memory slots alright I'm gonna talk about a movie that's probably gonna lose a lot of the listeners here for <laughs> yeah, okay, yeah, I know which one you picked. <laughs> Reservoir Dogs. Um, I watched a movie called Strictly Ballroom. Which... Strictly Ballin? No, no. <laughs> oh, that sounds cool. Oh, say, that's Strict- a movie. Strictly Ballin. Yeah, that's a banger. Strictly Ballroom. Oh, which is Boz Lerman's uh, directorial debut. Now he obviously most recently did Elvis, but he is known for doing you know the Romeo and Juliet with Leonardo DiCaprio, okay. Moulin Rouge. He does very big musical things. This one's interesting because it basically follows this guy who does dance competitions and he wants to win like the national championship title, but he decides he wants to do his own moves and not just be a stick in the mud and follow the same routine over and over again. What's interesting about this is that the first part of the movie is shot as a mockumentary, which I guess was shot kind of as like a proof of concept. And so the first part of it is, yeah, just like mockumentary, very weird and funny. And then it jumps into the film and does not all go back to the mockumentary whatsoever. And then it's just kind of like a straightforward drama romance. But then because of the mockumentary at the beginning, there's a lot of comedic elements that still read as very funny. And so for me, it was like a little hard to take the plight of this boy seriously where I'm like, it's just, it's just a dance competition. Yeah. You're just being, it's people with enormously teased and hairsprayed hair just being very bizarre. Um, but it was super fun. The music's like super fun. And um, I would say it's like maybe, you know, slightly problematic, but. Musicals. Uh, they don't sing or anything. They just dance to music in it. Oh, okay. Well, that's fine. Yeah. But it still kind of follows the musical genre. Anyway. I think out of all of Boz Lerman's stuff, it's probably the most digestible for people who don't like musicals. So I got to, you know, as I think more about it, I got a very complicated relationship with musicals. Rocket Man was good. I liked Rocket Man. Okay. That's mm. a music. I think what it, it is, is, is the when they use the music instead of just having a discussion. You don't like that? I don't like it. Okay, that's a lot of musicals. Yeah. Yeah. Because they use music to further the plot and further the connection of characters. Uh Mm. But (laughs) in Rocket Man, it's just him singing his songs. It's more like music videos interspersed throughout a movie. So I like that. Yeah. I can't wait until I pick another musical to force you to watch. Goofy movie's good. I love musicals. Again, not the demographic for particularly this episode. So uh, we can yeah. go ahead Let's and move on from that. Guns and shooting people and big old wieners. This is a guy movie. Girls. Girls. Girls are also allowed. Wel- girls are also welcome. <clears throat> a girl edited this movie. 
girls we are included. Yeah, girls. Okay, should we talk about what we're going to yeah, be we focusing should, uh, on today? Summarize yeah. this film. If you guys could do the best job to summarize this film to someone who may have never seen it. Yeah, okay, cool. So I'll, I can start off. So Reservoir Dogs, directed by Tarantino. We open with this conversation between all of the men who we find out are going to be robbing a jewelry store for diamonds. And um, they're all just kind of sitting around the table talking, kind of bickering. I feel like they talk about whether or not you tip waitresses. I don't know how important that is to like really get into detail. So anyway. Um, they, they do a lot of talking that doesn't adhere to the plot necessarily. I mean, it yeah. kind of establishes their personalities. So you yeah. kind of get an idea for who they are off the bat. Anyway. Yeah. That's, that's just the director trademark. Yep. So hard cut. And we have a guy shot in the back of a car and he's bleeding everywhere and he's writhing around in pain and he's going, I'm going to die. And this man is Mr. Orange, played Mm -hmm. by Tim Roth. And Mm -hmm. he is gripping the hand of Mr. White, played by Harvey Keitel. And Harvey Keitel kind of soothes him and they end up going into this warehouse, which after this job that went horribly wrong, this is like the rendezvous that they agreed to meet at. So at first it's just uh, Mr. White and Mr. Orange. Mr. Orange, again, convinced he's going to die. Mr. White kind of like leaves him when Mr. Pink, played by Steve Buscemi, shows up. Pink and White start to talk and they realize, oh, we were set up because the cops were right there the second like we did this. So somebody tipped them off. We got a rat. One of one of us is a rat and we have to figure out who that is. Mostly they're just kind of arguing. Mr. Pink wants to just get out of there because he's like, they probably tip, tipped him off that this is the rendezvous spot, so we should get out of here. And that's when Mr. Blonde shows up, who is played by, is it Michael? Michael Michael Madsen. Um, who, he is the reason kind of everything went to crap, because he started shooting the jewelry store workers. So a bunch of civilians died, a bunch of cops died. They also find out that two of their men, Mr. Blue and Mr. Brown, died. Mr. Brown played by Tarantino very briefly. So they start bickering. Mr. Blonde, again, played by Michael Madsen, says, nobody's going anywhere. We're going to wait for nice guy Eddie, who is played by Chris Penn. And he goes, come here. I have a little present for you. And he goes to his car, opens up the trunk, and there is a cop. Miles, take it away. Okay. Effectively, they, well, so, yeah, they they go to the cop. And they take him, they put him in a chair, and they slap him around a little bit. And then Nice Guy Eddie shows up. And Nice Guy Eddie's like, what the fuck is going on here, guys? And they're like, we have a rat. We got a rat. And he's like, we don't have a rat. And they're like, no, we got a rat because all this fucking crazy shit happened. I left all the food out. We've got a rat. We got rats. We got to put out a trap. But uh, he (laughs) takes Mr. Pink and Mr. White, uh, good guy Eddie, Nice Guy Eddie. Uh, takes them to go get the diamonds. move the cars and move the yeah get the mm. diamonds that Mr. Pink stashed. Uh, so it's just Mr. Blonde, the cop, and Mr. Orange. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was passed out. Basically, from blood yeah, loss. he's passed out. So it's just the cop and Mr. Blonde. And I should mention this is kind of being interspersed with flashbacks of some of the characters kind of meeting with uh, nice guy Eddie's. <laughs> dad joe joe so you kind of know who isn't probably the rat and then you there's a fun little torture scene if you like torture mm-hmm. to uh stuck in the middle with you classic mm-hmm. iconic yeah right before mr blonde kills the cop mr orange gains consciousness and blows that motherfucker away just unloads his shots onto him mm-hmm. mag dumps on him mag dumps 
into his chest and then basically is like, I'm the cop. And the guy goes, I know. And the guy goes, oh. And then you see a flashback of kind of like him getting into the crew. And then the other guys come back and then there's a quick little blah 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 where nice guy Eddie is like, he definitely wasn't the rat. I think you're the rat. He says Mr. Blonde wasn't the rat. Yeah, Mr. Blonde wasn't the rat. Because Mr. Orange is trying to blame it on Mr. Blonde. Yeah. And then Joe shows up and he's basically like, okay, Mr. Orange is the rat because he's the last person I would have. He's the la- He's the person that I didn't believe in the most. So he is the rat. And then Mr. White is like, no, fuck you. He's a good kid. And then they get into a Mexican standoff and Mr. White pops off and shoots both Joe and nice guy Eddie also gets hit uh so everyone is basically on the ground or dead uh because joe shot mr orange so it's just mr pink basically he skedaddles he skedaddles and you hear him get shot uh mr orange and mr white get together and like mr orange does a terrible decision in my (laughs) opinion and confesses that he was a cop and then mr white puts a gun to his head and then the cops show up. They're like, put the gun down, put the gun down, put the gun down. And then you hear a gunshot, and then you hear more gunshots, and then Mr. White dies, and you're kind of like, all right, everyone's dead. And that is uh, Reservoir Dogs, made in 1992. Every dog has his day. Tarantino likes to tell very nonlinear stories, so in the essence of that, I'm going to tell a very linear story. All right, start from number one. Okay. Once upon a time... There was a boy born to a mother, Connie McHugh, and Tony Tarantino in Knoxville, Tennessee. That's a sick name. Tony Tony Tarantino Tarantino. is pretty cool. He was not very much of a sick man, though, so he left before that boy was born. (laughs) Mm, And and the mother would remarry and divorce several times over many years. Many times this boy and his mother would travel between California and Tennessee. All the while, he would develop a taste for film and for writing you got a little taste for something else too wine violence no it starts with an f feet oh it's a feet right. joke because we're talking about quentin tarantino i guess and then they said dogs yeah yeah anyways dogs at some point he liked toes um yo i bet he's not sick of that one there's actually no uh no feet in this movie no nah, because it's only dudes yeah he doesn't like men feet don't look at me. I don't know. You don't, look, don't, you don't like the man I ask foot. Him. Anyways, one day his mother would criticize his first screenplay, which he wrote at 14, which is like fan fiction, essentially. While she reprimanded him for not attending more closely to his schoolwork, he would think to himself, okay, lady, when I become a successful writer, you will never see one penny from my success. There will be no house for you. There's no vacation for you. No Elvis Cadillac for mommy. You get nothing because you said that. <laughs> true to his word, there was 14. <laughs> true to his word, there Jeez. was not much. <laughs> God damn. Um, okay. Fuck. <laughs> um, and so the young lad would live on his own in California. That's where we are. Yeah, he'd work various jobs for many years, most notably five years at the Video Archives Video Store in Manhattan Beach, California. There he would accumulate his knowledge and expertise of film, often imparting his wisdom onto those, what are they? Ask for it or not. Yeah, it sounds like a film, bro. And he has gone on record very proudly proclaiming that he did not go to film school, but that he went to films. 
Although he did say too, he spent a lot of money on like film equipment and stuff on his own time. So he's like, I did pay the money. I did pay like half of the money to go to film school, but I just didn't go to film school. To say I didn't go to film school, I went to film. All right. All right. But also, he's pretty good. It, it's a fucking bummer he is good. <laughs> he is it? good. It, it kind of like, sucks. The one thing about Tarantino is watching him is he kind of gets on my nerves because he's like so confident. But, but he's, like, he's kind of earned he that can, confidence. He can, like, he can yeah. back it up, so I guess. I do think it's also important to note that, like, yeah, you don't need to go to film school to get into film. And mm-hmm. I think he's a very good example of that. So, yeah. You know. You do need to. And I say this as someone who is currently in film yeah. school. If you don't go to film school, it is very important, though, that your father isn't in your life and your mother doesn't like you. Yeah. And you don't like your mother. Or you have connections to the and film And if industry. your life isn't that difficult, make it difficult. Boom. Live in squalor. <clears throat> yep. It Hurt helps. people. Starving artist. Turn away all your friends. But anyways, <laughs> Mr. Tarantino's first foray into Hollywood was as a production assistant. Why Hold on. Accent? Oh, yeah. You don't like my accent. With fellow video store co-worker Roger Avery, who would go on to sort of help produce and co-write things for him in the future. The first thing they worked on together as PAs was... The illustrious Dolph Lundgren's workout video, Maximum Potential, in 1986. There he cleaned up dog poo poo. He cleaned up dog poo poo so Dolphy could stay clean when he was working out in the in the parking lot. Why did you say it like that? I don't know. Cause I think, it's funny. I had to clean up goat poop once. Goat poop. Oh my you god! Did? I yeah. remember that. Yeah. I watched this man clean up goat poop. Uh huh. And I did. I did nothing. Sick. I just watched it. Uh, he would also get a job as an Elvis impersonator in an episode of The Golden Girls. Oh, uh, okay. And he would get residuals for that role. And over three years, he got like $3,000 for that role. Miles is resting his forehead on his... Uh, what's it? A pop filter? Pop, pop filter. filter. There we go. I forgot the word. All right. I'm a, I'm a, I'm a little sweepy guy. Is I'm that EP? All right. I'll go a little quicker then for you, boy. Or I can make some voices to keep you awake. Distracted. Uh, yeah, do the voices. Do, do more voices. Do the voices. But anyways, me. he would get like $3,000 from doing these roles. And that money would go towards his first movie, Reservoir Dogs. Now, Avid, the Takes It Took a Movie podcast listeners, will recall the name Scott Spiegel from our Evil Dead 2 episode. <gasps> oh. <gasps> That was my impression of a listener. Recalling that episode. Here's my impersonation of a listener. This part's too loud. Why is it quiet now? Oh, it's loud. It's too loud now. <laughs> no. That's our, that's our first couple episodes. No. Shut up. <laughs> Shut up. Scott Spiegel was a friend of Sam Raimi, and he moved to LA with the Coen brothers, Holly Hunter, Francis McDormand, and Kathy Bates. They all lived together. The dream house. Yes. And so Scott worked on a personal indie horror movie with a man named Lawrence Bender. And Lawrence Bender was trying to get into producing. So at a barbecue, Scott Spiegel would introduce Quentin Tarantino to Lawrence Bender. And he would tell Lawrence Bender about the script idea he had for cops and robbers and them chasing each other and heist gone bad kind of thing. And Bender was like, that's really good. You should write it. So Tarantino went, okay, I'll go write it. And three and a half weeks later, there existed a script in the world that was hastily typed on an old typewriter full of typos and not formatted correctly. <laughs> That's pretty funny. That's what I like to hear. Yeah. yeah. It makes me feel better about myself. It really does. 
Not as fast as uh, John Hughes. John Hughes. John Hughes pumping out scripts in a day. Mm-hmm. But we can all be John Hughes again. This is something he had cooking in his brain, though. It didn't, oh, it didn't yeah. just like come out of nowhere. It yeah. was like translating onto the page. Um, at the end of the script, he would also write uh, influences slash inspirations for this story. Mm-hmm. Uh, I can go through them all if you want, but the most important one is "The Killing" by Stanley Kubrick, or he actually cites Lionel White, who wrote the story that that movie is based on. Just so that heist in general, I guess. And the killing is directed by Stanley Kubrick. Yeah, I already said that. Oh, did you? Yeah, yeah, I said it kind of quick. I couldn't. Oh. I um, couldn't tell you. And there's there's a lot of parts of this movie that are drawn from other things. There's a movie, the taking of Pelham one two three, like the original. They have people using colors as code words, so they're actually like Mister Orange White and Pink and stuff in that movie. So he kind of just like brought that over. I'm gonna be real with you. When they started saying that their names were colors, I was like, the fuck "Is this Clue? The the board game? Clue? Put in a boo. Editor, put in a boo." Clue the board game because because they're all based- oh Battleship the board game <laughs> the movie the movie the Battleship board game movie Candyland <laughs> the Candyland movie we need to make a Candyland movie it's about drugs oh can we make it yeah dark and gritty yeah dark and gritty Candyland movie uh that comes the, out uh, after the gritty G Force the, movie the gooey uh-huh. monster guy is Ooh, selling black? black tar heroin black tar heroin <laughs> cocaine here's some sugar for you put it up your nose it's like a really biting gripping um commentary on like drug addiction drug addiction as well as like pharmaceuticals in general Yo, and like no okay hold on the drug addictions of fast food companies where they're like just pumping that shit full of really uh addicting stuff a what what a, a, a what you know, like fast food. No, what, you, what was the word you said? Ad, ad, Addicting? Ad, what's in the middle of that? Dick? <laughs> yeah. You guys are children. Ah, oh I didn't do that one. That one, you can't put that shit on uh, me. I know, that's true, actually, for the first time in forever. For the first time in a very long time. For the time, first the dick time in God, forever. Please, we're losing listeners. Let's get back on um, track. Bender and Tarantino Probably. wanted to shoot this movie themselves. They got about $30,000 together. And uh, they had a 16 millimeter camera. But one day, Tarantino picked up his phone. Ring, 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 ring. It was none other than the dulcet Brooklyn tones of Harvey Keitel on the phone, who plays Mr. White. See, what had happened was Tarantino gave the script to his friend Bender, who was taking acting classes, who gave it to his teacher. And his teacher's wife was in the same acting studio as Harvey Keitel, and she gave it to Harvey Keitel. He read it, and he went, uh, this is great. I want to be a part of this. So he called him up, and he said, look, consider me in. Not only do I want to do it, and this is Keitel, I want to be one of the producers. I want to help get it made. Whatever I can do, let me know. Pastrami. So that was a huge important part of making this movie, was having Keitel well, yeah, attached. No, that would help. That would because definitely help. Because he brings money, and he brings legitimacy. Which attracts more actors. Because he had been in Scorsese's stuff much earlier mm-hmm. and was a well-established actor. If yep. you don't know who Keitel is, Miles, mm. do you know? I know what a cartel is. Mm. Yeah. Okay. Have you seen Taxi Driver? No. Wait, yes. Oh, he's the pimp? Kind of a small role. Yeah, don't remember it's it. a small role. I don't uh, have know you seen National Treasure? Nicholas Cage. Nicholas Cage? Yeah. yeah. He is like the FBI oh, guy. Oh, okay. Trying to... Figure yeah, out what you might know him. him from. 
Mean Streets? Nope. The Re- piano? Reservoir Dogs? Nope. Rise Down Reservoir Dogs? Yeah, see, he's got one. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> there you go. Anyway. Um, also important to note, Quentin Tarantino also wrote a script for a movie called True Romance, which around this time he was able to sell, and he got about $50,000 from it, which he remarked was the legally the smallest amount they could have paid him. Um, and so he put all that money towards Reservoir Dogs as well. Um, also, I'm sure a lot of people are very upset hearing the shenanigans that went on with the script and how it got places. If it makes you feel better, the average person is only like seven steps away from Kevin Bacon. So yeah. if you write a script, you could probably get it to Kevin Bacon. Mm-hmm. If you walk out with enough knives and weapons and stuff and climb your way up, you can get right next to him. Yeah. Got to break down those steps. Mm-hmm. Get close to the man. Yeah. Most rich people, surprisingly, a lot of their security is just security theater. So it's not that hard to break into one of their homes. I don't know if we need to keep this in. So if you wanted to break into a rich person's home. Anyways, uh, a director named Monty Hellman was originally going to direct this movie. He was attached. We don't know him super well. Mariah, we've watched one of his movies. We watched The Shooting with Jack Nicholson. Oh. Monty Hellman. Um, That's not his most well-known movie. His most well-known is a movie called, I think... Was it called like something on the blacktop between the blacktop? I think something like that. But he was originally attached and he ended up just being like an executive producer and sort of help. He helped like clean up the script and give advice and do that kind of thing. But now, despite having $3,000 from impersonating Elvis and 50000 from a script, uh, Bender and Quentin Tarantino are now broke and they still need actors and a whole lot more ground to cover. So Kaitel was like, hey, I'll fly you guys out to New York and we can audition for actors there. Does it sound good? Cool? Okay. So they went out to New York. They auditioned for actors like Buscemi, Michael Madsen, and Tim Roth. Quentin Tarantino actually wanted to play Mr. Pink himself. And when Buscemi came in and he was auditioning for Pink, he was like, just so you know, like, I'm going to play this role. So like, you need to like knock it out of the water if you're going to get this role. And then apparently he knocked it out of the water. He's like, okay, fine. You can have it. I think Steve Buscemi works really well. For Mr. Pink. Yes. You need someone a little... Wiry. Rat-like. And he's wiry, and he's just like, you know. We're professionals. That was good. That's Buscemi right there. Yeah. I was Shammy. Uh, Bender, Lawrence Bender, our producer friend, would read as the captured cop during auditions. And apparently guys would come in and they'd bring their own knives and bats. And on one or two occasions, guns. And they were oh. like, oh, don't worry, it's not loaded. And he's like, I still don't want you pointing a gun at me, man. Yeah. Um, so that's a fun thing. I wouldn't thing. either. Yeah. Uh, but don't like that. They were able to get actors. They're method, actors. man. They're just. You just don't understand. They make a craft. living lying. They make a living pretending. How do you trust an actor, man? I just don't get it. But speaking of casting, one of the most important characters in this is Tim Roth, who plays Mr. Orange. Freddy. He was a member of what they call the Brit Pack. We're aware of the Brat Pack. We're aware of the Rat Pack. Get ready for the Brit Pack. I love British. The British Pack. So they're uh, all British. Yeah. So it's people like Colin Firth, Daniel Day Lewis, okay, and Daniel Day Lewis, and Gary Oldman. What, Gar- what were you gonna Gary. say, Mariah? Gary Oldman. It sounds a bit Australian. A bit, sometimes it comes into Australian. Okay, and once you invoke the Australian in my mind, oh, it's hard, it's hard to in my mind, it's, it's kind of really hard, hard to get, to get it out. out. Yeah, once it's in, it's in. Get once me out it's of this hell. Yeah, hey, mate. Bluey. Uh, blow- oh, let's go watch Bluey. Anyways, oh, no. Tim Roth. The condensation. The con- <laughs> Emma. 
We are. We are. Um, all H2O fans. Yeah, all there. the H2O. All, all our mermaid <laughs> listeners out there. I know. Again, for this specific episode. For this episode of, yeah, Reservoir <laughs> Dogs. Reservoir Dogs. Um, but after a couple of movies and success, Roth decided he would uh, no longer audition for parts. He was like, I don't audition if the actor wants to see me. I just prefer him to my other movies. I don't want to do it. Because he, he, one, feels he's very bad at it. And two, he's like, it's such a, like an agonizing experience to put yourself through that. So he's like, I'm just not going to do it. Well, I also like... I had a today. I I did the first part of a lead climbing class, and once mm-hmm. you have to do something in front of someone else, your I feel like your skills get fucking shot. You get buffed, yeah, yeah, debuffed, I should say. So I can understand him being like, I don't want to do yeah. it. Yeah, I don't want to. So do he's it. like, I don't want to do it. He had enough fame where he's like, I feel like you know I can just point people to what I've done. It's fine. And he's like, I don't audition. I don't read a script. So Tim Roth had sat down with uh, Harvey Keitel, and Keitel was trying to convince him to do it, and he's like, No. I'm not going to do it. And they're like, okay. And then so Quentin Tarantino sat down with Tim Roth and they were at a bar. They had some drinks and then some more drinks and then some more drinks until Roth was drunk and he was like, I'd read anything you give me right now. So Quentin Tarantino wrote down the dialogue that he remembered on napkins and stuff and he gave it to him and they started reciting some lines and then they got more beer and went back to his apartment and they read the whole script. And Tim Roth was like, yeah, it was the first script I'd read in years. Damn. That's kind of cool. What ha, do you know what he had done before this? Um, a big I, thing, I'm not familiar with A big thing Tim was Ron. he did a movie called <laughs> Rosencrantz and Gilderstern, which I want to watch, which I've is heard about him and that. Gary Oldman. That okay, was like yeah. a big thing. But this was his big American thing. Gotcha. Okay. This was his breakthrough into America, right. essentially. But yeah, Roth liked the structure of the script, the sort of non-linear jumping back in time, kind of stuck within the warehouse bit. He was most interested in Mr. Orange, which not a lot of people uh, auditioned for. Not a lot of people want to do it. But he's like, I'm a British man playing an American, playing a character who's a cop pretending to be a robber. And he's like, I like that just sort of dimensionality of it. What else is he in? He looked really familiar, he's, but I couldn't. He's in Pulp Fiction. He's in Pulp Fiction? Mm-hmm. Right. He's the guy mm-hmm. who robs the... Yeah. In the same restaurant okay. where he's meeting up with his cop friend and breaking everything down in, uh, in this. That's the uh. restaurant that he and... Bunny or whatever, Rob yeah. in Pulp Fiction. That's cool. Yeah, yeah. I noticed that. that with my sharp little eagle with eyes. Sharp little woman eyes. Is he also in Hateful Eight. Yes. Okay, that's what I thought. Yep. Been a while since I've seen that one. He right. plays. He plays Morbury. Like the... There's something Morbury. He's like some dentist or yeah. like a doctor or some shit. There's some listener who's like seething as we're like, well, yeah. what was yeah. it? I got clo- I I got Morbury. That's right. It's like Os- Oswaldo Morbury. That's it. I got it. Anyways, Roth started practicing with a dialect coach like three weeks earlier, blocking out the script and like sounding things out. They kind of hated each other just because, I don't know, when someone's correcting your speech and telling you what to do all the time, it gets uh, aggravating. So they got the dialect coach uh, the role of the woman in the car who shoots shoots him him, and then he shoots her. That's his dialect coach. Was that like a healing moment for them? (laughs) Yeah, probably. That's pretty funny. Um, So that's funny, shooting women. Michael Madsen. Not to be confused with Mad Michelson, Mads Michelson, or Mad Max, or Mad Max, or Wild Woody. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Michael Madsen was in. Where did that come from? I don't know. W's was in. He was in like small roles and low budget stuff. He hadn't really been in a lot. He was in. He was in Thelma and Louise, which I believe Cartel Keitel was also in, which is interesting. That was one point. He was like, "Oh, I know Keitel. I think that was." Another reason he kind of got this role and was able that to That was the year before, correct? I believe so. Yeah. And he was interested in the script because one, he liked it. 
two because he knew Kaito was attached and he had, you know, brushed shoulders with him before on Thelma and Louise. And the others, they just kind of got the job by auditioning, honestly. I don't know. They just auditioned and did it. Nothing crazy to talk about there. But when auditions were done, Tarantino and Bender had dinner with Kaitel and said, you know what? You should be a co-producer on this, not just an executive producer. And uh, Kaitel said, you know, I, th- I thought you'd never ask. And on the flight home back to California, Kaitel walked him onto the plane. He brought him back to the coach and he said, someday you'll be flying first, but on my dime, you're flying coach. And then, he, and then he went up the first. <laughs> oh my God, he left him? <laughs> yeah. That's great. Real quick uh, while we're talking about casting, mm-hmm. that motherfucker Joe do be looking like the thing. Joe, yeah, he do, Yeah, We're going to talk a lot about Mr. Joe played okay. by Lawrence Tierney. Uh, he's a bulk of this story here that we're going to do. Interesting. Yeah. So, I would not have... Yeah, it, I'm intrigued. It, yeah. I, I, I felt like maybe we'd be talking about like Tarantino being anal on set and like no, not not much things. about that. Interesting, but that man, um, yeah. Maybe so, it's just because he has like a very specific vision, but like once he gets on set, it might be better. But yeah, I, don't I just know. kind of always assumed. I it's also his first movie, right? Yeah, so maybe he hasn't it, gotten anal yet. From what I've understood, mm-hmm. it sounds like a lot of actors either mesh with him or they don't, and if they don't, he doesn't cast them. So it's like usually the people who are working with him are people that want to be working with him and they don't mind working with him. From what I've heard from various interviews on different Samuel movies. Jackson. Yeah. There's a production office established somewhere along Hollywood Boulevard. And one night the cast was gathered in Los Angeles and Quentin Tarantino watched as they all sat and had dinner and shot the shit and told stories. And he thought to himself, this is it. This is the characters. There they are. They're doing the thing. They're doing the thing. They're telling jokes. They're being rambunctious, being crazy men. This is before filming? or Yeah, before dr- filming. Before filming. Yeah. And he's like, this is my movie. This is what I wanted. I got the cast. And uh, he was very happy. He, said, he thought to himself, this is the happiest I've been in my entire life. And he Aww. he drove the long way home that night and just took it slow. Funny to say then that, you know, later we'll discuss that. The casting was uh, some of the major issues with this movie. Oops. Anyways. Basic stuff, they had about 24 days to shoot, and they shot four to six day weeks with a final budget of about one point. It's kind of hard to pinpoint because a lot of this was like personal money in personal funds and personal items. So it's like 1.2 to like 3 million. You don't really know. Uh, they used a vacant mortuary as the warehouse. And rather than dressing it to someone, something else, they were like, well, let's just make it a mortuary. So they got some caskets and they got a hearse to just park there and put tarp over it. Oh, cool. I thought that was just like a fucking van. I thought it was just a nah, white van. Nah, dude, that's where they put dead people. That's where they put dead I thought you would know that. I will. How much you love dead people. It was people. tall. It was taller than I thought a hearse would be. Mm. It was very tall. He had to jump down quite a ways yeah. to get down off of that thing. Yeah, I don't think I realized it was a hearse. Yeah. No, nah, that's a hearse because it's a mortuary. And you can see it in like the sink uh, when they're in the bathroom. There's like a bunch of like tubes and stuff and like embalming fluids and things there. That's what... But all that is. Gotcha. Because um, it makes it easier. You're just like, eh. Yeah. It is what it embrace is. Embrace it. Yeah. yeah, embrace Rather it. Rather than fight it. Mr. Orange's room is actually a room atop the mortuary warehouse. So it's in the same place. And they just painted it blue. Which Mariah thinks is because he's Mr. Orange and blue is a primary color. Which I get probably. I never saw anything about that. But that would make sense. What? Just, just um, blue is a complementary color of orange. Oh. Yeah. And he's a cop, on the- cops are blue. Maybe. Yeah, it could be. I don't, I don't know. know. And just the, because and they did some very specific things with like 
an orange balloon that like the car drives by and stuff. Yeah, and I just then, think it, they were very specific with the color. So just a hypothesis. I don't know. It, hey, listener, if you know, please email in at the takes at gmail.com. Do you know? I'm curious. I'm not. Yeah. I am. I'm curious. <laughs> but anyways, I blue. hunger for the knowledge. I hunger. Give me the knowledge like the lady in Indiana Jones and the Christmas skull. Uh-huh. And I want I want your knowledge to melt my goddamn face. Melt off. my brain. Uh anyway. yeah. his room's atop the mortuary. Also, you can see a liquor store from across the street from his window. There's a shot where he looks out the window at the parked car. And you gotta get a release form if you're gonna show the liquor store like that. So they just kind of made like an under the table deal where they're like, We'll buy all our liquor from you and like the wrap beer after every day of shooting, we'll just like buy it from your store. And they're like, Okay. The actors also were encouraged to bring their own clothes. Many of them were wearing their own suits. The car that the cop is in is actually just Michael Madsen's car. You got a sweet yeah, car. Yeah, you got a sweet Dang. car. Dang. So a lot of what they had was just kind of like their own things. Because, cool. You know, save money. Yeah, save Efficient. money. Low budget movie. Yup. Um, also, they couldn't afford like police traffic to like stop traffic when they're doing the road scenes. So they would just do it at like green lights. All right. Um, like the hijacking stuff, they're just like wait for the green and be like, "All right, go." So hey, and the uh, the fa- gorilla filmmaking, yeah, it's gorilla. Uh, <laughs> very expensive to shut down a street. Yes, even in like a very residential area, I oh, have yeah. found out. So mm-hmm. uh, yeah, it makes sense how they would just do that. I couldn't tell you a number, but um, too much for me. Too much when you don't have a lot of money for your movie. Yeah. Meanwhile, once upon a time in Hollywood, you got Quentin Tarantino shutting down like downtown la streets i can't imagine what that yeah. costs anyways each actor seemingly had their own approach you know some would be method acting some would not tim roth particularly like abhors method acting he thinks it's silly he thinks it's stupid i think michael madsen would like kind of method act and two actors kirk baltz who played the cop thought to himself one day oh i should ride in the trunk of a car because that's like good experience for my character you know, like, I don't know, just to, like, relate it to something, How I guess. How messed up I would be after that yeah, experience. Yeah, so he asked Michael Madsen, he's like, hey, uh, if I get in the trunk of your car, could you just, like, drive me around the block? Michael Madsen was like, oh, that's cool. Like, yeah, it's good for my character, too. Like, yeah, let's go do that. Um, I can't imagine this ends well. According to Kirk Baltz, they drove around the block, and he's like, wow, it's dark, it's hot, it's sweaty. This isn't fun, but, like, hey, I got to experience it. According <laughs> to Michael Madsen, they got in the car. You know, he started driving, he's going down the road, and he's like, I don't know, I just, I felt something. I started to feel like the character, so I turned on the radio, I turned it up kind of loud, I drove longer than we're supposed to, I found this alleyway that was really bumpy, I went down the alleyway, oh my God. started bumping around, then he started banging on the trunk and yelling at me, and then I thought to myself, I'm hungry. So he went to Taco Bell, and went and got a Taco Bell, and then he turned the radio up so they couldn't hear Kirk Waltz screaming in the trunk. And then uh, after all that, they went back to the warehouse and they let him out of a trunk. And according to Michael Madsen, uh, he's very angry at him and he couldn't tell if it was sweat or tears on his face. <laughs> but <laughs> both what? of them adhere to their own stories. So even in the movie, he goes and gets a drink. Yeah. Well, anyways, after that lovely interaction in the trunk, we have another interaction between those two same men, uh, Kirk Balls and Michael Madsen, where. What's his last name? Kirk Baltz. Baltz. B A L T Z. B A L T Z. I was missing Baltz. the T. Okay. But anyways, it's the scene where he's torturing him and he's pouring gas on him. And Tarantino's like, oh, you should kind of like improvise this bit, like come up with your own pleas and begs, you know? And Mr. Baltz, having 
perhaps gone through the car thing and maybe feeling animosity or maybe that didn't happen like he how he told her. I don't know. Anyways, he realized Michael Madsen just had some he had a kid. And so one of the things he says is, Don't do it, man. I got a kid. And when they're doing that take, Michael Madsen like apparently like stopped and he's like, I don't want to say that. Like, I don't want to say that line where Tarantino was like, oh, it's good, you should do that. Apparently in the movie, when he says, don't do it, I got a kid, the camera's like on the cop at that moment, and you can hear like background noise, and it sounds like Michael Madsen kind of being like, saying something like, stop, or like, no, don't do that, or saying something like that. And oh, people, really? People think it's him in that take being like, no, don't do it, or Tarantino being like, keep going, or like telling him to keep going, because Madsen stopped. Now I want to rewatch it and listen, yeah, listen really carefully. I, it was hard to make out anything, but you definitely hear someone talk. It's it sounds like it's Madsen just sort of saying something, but I don't know what. Mm, okay. But it's interesting. Yeah. But uh, apparently those two were buds, and they also like had a good communication about like, um, because he like slaps them around and stuff, and they're like, right. yeah, it's fine, you know. And they were open dialogue. They worked very well together. He was like, slap me. Slap you me. Got a safe word. Let me here. Slap me there. Kiss me here. Cut my ear Cut off. Cut my ear off. Also, the ear. There is. They did plan to just show the ear being cut off. They had really? prosthetics, makeup. There is a shot of it. You can find it of them huh. cutting the ear off. And I think two reasons was one, it didn't like really hold up. And two, Tarantino was like, I think it's more dramatic if we pull away and you know and let your imagination kind of do the work. That sort of thing. And of course, it's like I- iconic thing. Now. Yeah, when it shifts up to the left and mm-hmm. pans up, which is what it does at the very end too, kind yeah. of with like zooming in and then everything's yeah. out of focus. Yeah. Letting things happen. Yeah, there, there was a shot where the, uh, Mr. Orange and the police officer are talking and it like right down the middle, it starts to get blurry. That was a split, split diopter, diopter, baby. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I love split that diopter. That one was kind of crusty. I don't think he used it pretty well in that particular shot. Well, the thing is, is that throughout the film, there's a lot of very good um, blocking for three, four people and yes. wides of that. And mm-hmm. they could have just done that shot because I can't remember exactly where it is. But there is a shot of Mr. White when he's in there. And it's like over his shoulder looking down at Mr. Orange. Mm. And I'm like, they could have just kind of done something like that instead of yeah. the split diopter that it's really jarring. Yeah. And like I think really pulls you out of it. Or um, like Stefan and I mentioned when we were watching it, uh, one of the things that Brian De Palma does when he uses split diopter mm. is he uses like the setting to help kind of hide the cut. Yeah. And there's like a door frame in the shot so if they had just kind of positioned mr orange a little mm. bit further down and used the door frame as like that yeah getting some cut, vertical lines um that would have helped hide it and make it a lot smoother yeah. but they did not do that yeah De Palma uses some great split diopters yeah and for those i think we've explained in a previous episode but a split diopter is essentially just like i don't, a, think, we, I don't think we ever have it's like a bifocal lens for a camera so half of it is at one focal range half of it is at another focal range and so you can have someone in the distance in focus and someone up close in the focus. What happens is in the middle, you get kind of this weird blur around who's ever closest to the camera. So you got to use it kind of carefully. Citizen Kane obviously used it mm-hmm. extremely skillfully. Yes. And it's like very famous for that. Yeah. A lot of the pictures I'm seeing is literally like you take a lens and l- cut 
right down the middle and then pop half of it out. Yeah, it's it, it looks kind of funny because it's like one one side of the lens is skinny and then the other half is thick and there's just like a ledge. Like oh, they make like a off. couple different versions, like one where like the middle doesn't have any glass. So weird. <laughs> cool. Anyways, cool. That was yeah some cinematography stuff to talk about there. Now we're gonna talk about Lawrence Tierney, aka Joe Cabot. He was very lovingly referred to as the Big Teddy Bear, uh, but was described almost unanimously as very aggravating to work with. Aww. Tim Roth didn't even want to act in the same room as him. Oh. He'd be like, get him out of here. There is a lot of arguments and altercations. Um, one of the big important ones was, I think it was the last 20 minutes of the last day of shooting for the first week, and it was also, they were shooting like the last 20 minutes of the film. When, when Joe has come back to the warehouse. And Lawrence just like hated the dialogue. He said it was too repetitive, too many dirty jokes. And also, I guess he would do this thing where you'd be talking to him and he would just like walk away. And I think it was like he would walk because he had to do something. He would just expect you to like kind of follow him. Then Tarantino was talking to him at one point and he was trying to like give him direction and he just started walking away. So Tarantino grabbed him and he's like, stay here. I'm talking to you. And Lawrence Tarantino was like, get your hands off me. And immediately they just like blew up into a huge argument and it ended with, okay, mother, I'm going to say some bad words, but I feel like it really just is good for the scene. So I apologize. I'm going to say some F words. Okay. All right. Anyways, they started getting an argument that ended with Quentin Tarantino saying something like, fuck you, you fat fuck. You're fucking fired. Take your fat fucking ass off my fucking set. And then they both stormed off the set. That does sound like something Tarantino yeah, would say. That's why I was like, that's that's how he talks. Yeah. That's how he'd say it. And apparently the crew like broke out into applause after they stormed off. So oh. Very sarcastically. They're kind of like, wow, good job, guys. Oh, okay. That kind. Yeah. Not like uh, everyone claps, Hooray. gives you $100 kind of clapping. No, no. It's kind of like, huh. So eventually they brought him back together and then Lawrence Journey was like, I'm sorry, kid. And, you know, like, oh, let's make it up. Let's go out and have some drinks. And Tarantino, Tarantino was like, nah, I'm not going to have drinks with you. Um, in fact it was kind of a rule to try and not have Tierney drink as much as possible they're like don't take him out to drink don't give him drinks like Ooh. and who was I think it was Michael Madsen was like so naturally I tried to get him to drink as much as I could <laughs> um, Madsen also said in an interview he was like yeah if he was here right now he'd physically attack me but apparently they went out to a bar one time Madsen went out to a bar with Lawrence Tierney and they were drinking and he's like oh I gotta go to the bathroom and then like 10 minutes passed and they heard some commotion outside. They went outside and he had dropped his pants and he was like standing in the street just like yelling Tyranny? at people. Yeah. Oh, okay. And he's just like yelling at people and they're like, that's weird. And I guess he just like <laughs> <laughs> drop his pants sometimes. Like That's weird. In a parking lot, Tim Roth was like, yeah, one time he just like dropped his pants in the parking lot. I don't know why he did it. Interesting but, fella. Man, got old man wiener flopping around yeah. out in public and he's yelling. That's a little weird. That's <laughs> not normal, right? No, it's not normal. And there was another tangent where Tim Roth was like, yeah, I went to go like out with drinks with him one time. <laughs> he was inviting me to his friends and he was like, here's my friend, the inventor of the light up yo-yo. <laughs> I was like, I yo, guess hell the, like, yeah. The kind of friends he had. Hell um, yeah. Are you kidding me? Being friends it, with a guy with the, that made the light up yo-yo? Doesn't mean they don't have connections to the film industry. Yeah, I don't know. Um I guess at one point he was at a bar and he called the cops because there was a fight breaking out when there wasn't. And when the cops got there, he fought them. Yo, uh, there's a fight breaking out Madsen. as soon as you get here. <laughs> there's a fight break. I didn't lie. 
Um, Madsen said he one time like walked through someone's wall, like he just like put himself <laughs> through someone's wall. Like um, Kool Aid Man just punched yeah, through that shit. He went through. Holy um, shit! You don't walk through walls. That shit requires speed. Yeah. Well, yeah. He was so. Edward Bunker was another actor. He played Mr. Blue. He was hardly in it. He was the other old man. Right. Um, they had like a history together, apparently. And one time they were sitting and Tim Roth noticed Edward Bunker looking at Lawrence Tierney, like very focused, looking at his bald head and the scars on his head. And Tim Roth was like, what are you looking at? Like, what's going on? And Edward Bunker was like, I'm trying to decide if I put those scars there or not. And apparently they had gotten in multiple fights in the past. And Edward Bunker, by the way, was an actual criminal. Oh. He was actually a bank robber and like tons of crazy crimes. <laughs> Dang. So and another... then just turned to acting after that? Yeah, just did some acting roles. I think he was he was also in Heat, I believe. Okay. But he spent time in like Folsom Prison <laughs> and like San Quentin. Like Jesus he, he did, Christ. He did some crazy stuff. I mean, at least you um, got uh, Kubrick would approve because then you got... Someone who knows the the knows the lingo. Knows the yeah. Lingo, that's probably yeah. why they brought him on. Damn. Uh, but one last thing I'll talk about with Eddie is, or with Lawrence, Chris Penn told a story. Who's nice guy Eddie about how he invited Lawrence over to a barbecue before filming began because he just like wanted to get to know him. So Lawrence Tierney called him at like eight a.m. and he's like, "When am I coming over?" He's like, I don't know, sometime like 12. And he's like, okay, I got to take like 10 buses to get over to your place. So he's like, okay. So he takes like, I don't know, 10 buses. He picks them up at the bus stop. He's wearing like Hawaiian short shorts and he's got like a weird button up on and he's all goofy. So he takes him back to his place. He starts cooking what Chris Penn says is some monster steaks. He gives him some bread, some cheese. He eats all the bread, all the cheese. He eats a steak. Um, and then he starts telling Chris Penn that he needs more lawn furniture. He's like, you don't, you don't got enough lawn furniture. Chris Penn's like, I got enough lawn furniture. I don't need lawn furniture. And he's like, I'll get you some lawn furniture. I got some back on my place when you take me home to my place. Chris Penn's like, when I take you home to your place? And he's like, yeah, the buses don't run that late. <laughs> and he's like, yeah. okay. So Chris Penn like cleans up and he comes back and he finds him asleep in his own bed. He's sleeping in his bed. And so he's like, <laughs> oh my okay, God. whatever. And he lets him sleep for a little bit and then he wakes him up and he gets up and he's like, oh, okay, let's go. We're ready to go. And he's like, no, I'm taking you home. Like, we're done. He's like, oh, I want to go out and have some fun. He's like, no, like, I, I got to, like, study for this movie. Like, I got things to do. He's like, you know, I'll stick in the mud, like, whatever. Um, let's get dessert at least. So they went out to get tiramisu. And they're eating tiramisu at this place. And apparently towards the end, he takes the, like, pewter vase in the middle of the table. And he just, like, swipes it. And he <laughs> hides it under his jacket. And he's like, I'm going to go wait out in the car. <laughs> and he goes and waits out in the car. So Chris Penn pays for it and they drive him home and he asks him, he's like, why'd you take the vase? And he's like, I don't know what you're talking about. What vase? What do you mean? And then they get to his place and he's like, oh, I got some videotapes I want to give you like of my stuff. And Chris Penn's in his head thinking like, this is what I wanted. This is why I invited him over. I want to talk about his work, his role. Finally, this is where we are. So he's like, wait here, I'll go get him. And he goes up and he comes back down with a basket full of lawn furniture. And Chris Penn's like, I told you, I don't want the lawn furniture. And Lawrence Tierney goes, then why the fuck do you make me break it down here then? And then he goes back up. <laughs> that's that's perfect. <laughs> it's just a... an unhinged <laughs> man. That's the kind of old man I want to be. be. I want to be the, that unhinged. It's a beautiful story. Where like, you get to the age where you can just do whatever you want. That is insane. It's insane. Yeah, he, he also, he's 
R.I.P. He died in like 2002. Oh man, sounds like but, he might have just had a screw loose and like I, I was maybe trying all to, those fights like concussed. Yeah, I was trying to research it. Yeah, my boy it, seems like he might have had a little bit of brain. He had damage. he had a lot. He had a long criminal record record. And actually, on Reservoir Dogs, he um he got drunk and he fired a revolver at his nephew, and he got arrested. But they let him like go for a day to finish filming because they were doing it. So they so they, he fired a gun at someone at his nephew. <laughs> In a drunken rage, and he got arrested. And I think it was like one of the producers was able to like talk with the police and be like, like, you know, let him come here and finish his shoot because he's got to do this job for us. So that was one of the biggest uh, obstacles for this movie was that man, Jesus wow. Christ, and uh, Tantino swore to never work with him again. I was gonna yeah, say I would probably do the same, but I, again, just to be like, as your first time director, having to deal with that. By golly, that shit's funny though. It oh. is very, it is very funny. A big teddy bear. Well, besides that, there is actually not a lot to talk about in production of this movie. You know, they did it on a low budget. They got it. Yeah. I think um, the lodge where they shot the scene where he's telling them the story about the police in the bathroom. That lodge was a gay bar. Oh, it's like a fun side tangent. Hell yeah. Um, and then yeah, that diner is the same diner in Pulp Fiction. And what they did is the producer just like ate there for like two weeks and he kind of figured out their schedules. And so when he asked them when they could shoot, he already knew like when was the slowest times and when was the best time. And they he just led with that. And so that's how they got that place. That's a good tactic. Yeah. But after this, the movie went to Sundance. And just as you do with a as you do. directorial debut. Hold on. Debut. debut. Mm-hmm. Who edited it? Uh, a girl named Sally Minky. A girl. A, lady. a woman. A lady. Uh, uh, we love women editors. Women. We love women. Yes, Sally Minky. And so they started screening it. At the first screening, the film... Okay, so he said the film was shot on scope. I believe they're referring to cinema scope, which is like kind of like a wide screen format. It's yeah. using an anamorphic lens. But the projector did not have the correct lens for that. Oh, shit. Um, so the film, when it was being projected, was like spilling past the screen and stuff. Like it didn't fit the, the screen. Right. Um, also, halfway through that screening, they accidentally brought the lights up in the theater. And then they're like, bring them back down. So they brought them back down. And then right at the end of the movie, when they're pulling their guns on each other, uh, they had a power outage. Damn. And, <laughs> and like... Apparently, it's just after yeah, a whole long screening of these trials and tribulations. I guess Sally Menke was like really upset too, and Quentin Tarantino was talking about it. He's like, it's one of those moments where you gotta like laugh because it's funny how horrible it went, but it's also really sad. Yeah. Um, the second screening like went when my okay. dog died of cancer. Uh, I know that's comparable. If you laughed at that, I think you might need to speak with somebody. Not me. Uh, the second screening went okay, and the third screening was like a special viewing in Salt Lake City. They did have scope lenses, but a bad one, so it didn't quite like work well. And about halfway through the movie, you get a frame that gets stuck. And then one second goes by, two seconds go by, three seconds go by, and then it burns. I was the film say, burns. Yeah, because it's film. It's going to... Yep, and it burns up, and then you know they have to fix that whole fiasco. So uh, at the final screaming, which is they screened at the Egyptian theater, which is like Sundance's like big theater, Quentin Tarantino like talked to the projectionist and like told him all the issues they had before. And he's like, I was telling him this with the sole intention of like scaring the shit out of him to like make sure he did everything as best as he could. 
because he didn't want to. Uh, Did it work? It worked. Yeah, it screened fine. Everything went well. And at Sundance, this movie got crazy, crazy hype. Everyone loved it. And they always said, oh, it's between you and this film, you and this film. So it was like four, like two weeks of people being like, yeah, you're going to win the Sundance Award. You know, like, you're going to win. And in the end, it seemed to come up between Reservoir Dogs and a movie called Poison Ivy. And if you don't know Poison Ivy, well. I don't. That's that's saying a lot right there. Yeah, they, there um, you go. But this movie starred Drew Barrymore and Tom Skerritt is about a bad teen who seduces her rich girlfriend's father. Oh, I, I actually, I have heard of that. Yeah, it's got yeah. 5.4 out of 10 on IMDb and 41% on Rotten Tomatoes. Not that that means much, but just to kind of give you, if you use that as a reference, kind of like I do. But anyways, Poison Ivy got the award. Really? Yeah, it won out Reservoir Dogs. And one of the reasons was apparently the cult told Quentin Tarantino is they were like, you don't need it. Oh. Was their reasoning. They're like, you don't need this award. You got it. But Tarantino didn't like that because he's like, you felt like it cheapened the awards to like charity. Yeah. He's like, you're, you're just giving it out kind of as like, which it, I think it's complicated because yeah, I do think it's kind of honorable to be like, oh yeah, I give it to indie filmmakers who, you know, this can be a way for them to boost and get into the industry and that kind of thing. But also like, if you're going to kind of ignore whether or yeah, not the film like deserves really it, good. like, but he was, he was pretty pissed off about that. And I'd be pretty mad too. Things like that. And it also screened out of competition at Cannes, so it didn't get anything there. But it got lots of awards from other places and was critically hailed. Still is. Yep. Did, it get, did it get the theater time? It did not actually make a lot in the box office because it didn't like play. It really mm-hmm. only played at festivals. I think it made like $3 million in the box office. It made a lot of money in the back end. I couldn't really find a number for how much it made, you know, once it was released and that kind of thing. But it, it did well enough for him to make Pulp Fiction, which... Would make a lot in the box office. Yeah, yeah. I think Pulp Fiction had a budget of like ten million, and it made like two hundred and fifty nine million or something like that. Fresh storytelling, nonlinear dialogue was fresh. You know, everyone loved it. It made waves. A lot of audience members couldn't really stomach the violence of it. Actually, Wes Craven, he's a horror director. He did Nightmare on Elm Street yeah. and some other things. He walked out of a screening of it because Wait, it's a lot of blood. Yeah, it, because he, well, he stated it was glorifying torture. Mm. That was his reasoning. He was like, I don't think, he's like, my movies are just sort of showing violence and stuff, but your movie's like glorifying torture. Um, and then Rick Baker, who's a really big special effects, like makeup artist, um, he's done a lot. You, If you know him, you know him. Um, he also walked out, but he he didn't mean it as like an insult to Tarantino. He's like, oh, it's just, I don't know. The hyper like realism of the scene just like made him queasy, I guess. Yeah. Um, so he left, but he thought it was good. And a lot of people to this day talk about Tarantino and violence and like it's unwarranted and he doesn't need it and stuff. And he's pretty much made like he's comfortable with that when you when he talks about it, he's like, It if you don't like it, don't watch it kind of opinion. Yeah. Um and he didn't feel bad about people walking out of the movie. He's like, that means it worked, you know, it made someone unsettled, that was the point. So he feels pretty fine about that, I guess. That Woo. is actually um, really all we got. Love it. Stefan, what did you think of the movie? Oh, boy. Uh, I mean, I was going to hit you with some trivia. Oh, hit me with the trivia first then. Um, so Mr. Blonde is well, named... Oh, real quick. Reservoir Dogs 200. Miles. Mr. Blonde is named Vic Vega, who also shares the same surname in the Tarantino universe. Vic Vega? 
coffee Mariah. guy? Isn't it Travolta? Yes. Hell Travolta's yeah, character, Fiction. Vince Vega. They are written as brothers. Oh, really? Tarantino wanted to make a movie about them as a prequel to these two movies called like Double V Vega or something like that. Uh, also, the entire soundtrack budget was blown on Stuck in the Middle with You. That would make sense, yeah. Um, but the producers were able to secure a record deal for like having all the songs on a record. Um, and they would be interspersed with like dialogue and moments from the film. And that did very well. It actually went platinum. Yo, I would get that uh, as a record. That'd be pretty sick. Yeah, yeah, so it performed really well. And that, that let him get more songs in the movie by doing that. You bring a girl over and you're like, hold on, I got the perfect record. And you play that. Madonna. <laughs> Madonna singing about. Also about the Madonna thing. Um, so at the beginning of the movie, Tarantino's talking about like a virgin. Yeah. And his whole theory is like, she's singing about a guy with a big penis, essentially. He's like, oh, his penis is so big that it's like a virgin. And they actually met at one point and he asked her about it. And she's like, no, it's about loving a guy. And she gave him an album that said, written on it was like to Quinn, it's about love, not dick <laughs> or something like that. Um, which I think is a very fun way to just uh, define Quentin Tarantino. It's about love, <laughs> not dick. Yeah. I like that. I like that a lot. Yeah. I didn't like that conversation. There's no, a few conversations I, and I, some few N-words that I do not like in yeah, this movie. Yeah. That's some of my biggest hangups about this yeah. movie. Is, it's, it, uh, it, so well, he was like we'll that right off the bat. Yeah. This man didn't well, like ease into it. He was just like I, that. Okay, we'll come back to you, but we're here so we can talk about it now. Yeah, he was off the bat. I he doesn't give him a pass, but like Samuel Jackson is wholeheartedly with him all the way. And he's on multiple occasions like doubled out and been like, No, he's fine, he's in his right. Like I don't have there's no issue with it. Um, which I think is interesting. Um how I feel about it. Our, our sensitive white sensibilities. Yeah. Here's what I'll say. Um, obviously, for this movie, a lot of it is pretty crude. And, you know, they have the conversation about, like, a virgin. They, um, Nice guy Eddie talks about, like, oh, you're trying to, like, fuck me in my dad's office. And, like, yeah. there's the homophobic yeah. stuff. Yeah. And a lot of it's just crude for shock factor. That is what Tarantino is trying to do, and that's what he does with the N-word. However, that word has a whole lot of history, and I just don't think it was necessary at all. Like, if you had just taken out those, same movie. Same movie. Um, I just would have liked it a little bit more. You do need the part, because like you can toss out the N-word, and it's the same movie. If you got rid of the part where he's talking about the lady that glued the guy's wiener to his stomach, that part you do need to keep. That's actually very pivotal to the movie, I think. Mm, yeah, of course. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, I'm with Spike Lee on this, uh, yeah, which I, we talked about that a little bit in the uh, Do the Right Thing episode. I like, just... Uh, yeah, the the angle that you come at is, you know, is what they're saying hurtful or, you know, yes. damaging, you know, social yes. social things of the time. Uh, yes, I believe so. Um, well, and the thing is, like, I can see these characters saying that stuff. I think that's the approach Tarantino has is he's yeah. like, it's not me saying it, it's the characters. Like, I just, you know, like, I'm buying the characters. I think that's kind of how he feels about it is he's just, you know, is writing it. Whether that, you know, take what you will from that. I think that's his thought process. I, th I think the locker room talk stuff 
works to a certain degree because they're trying to portray themselves as the most macho, most Mm. masculine in this group of men. But what's interesting is that you also have these very, specifically between Mr. White and Mr. Orange, you have very tender moments. Yeah. Where, yeah, Mr. Orange is asking, please hold me. I'm scared. And um, one of the notes that I wrote down as I was watching this is that when they first get to the warehouse and he's like asking him to hold him and Mr. White is holding him, it looks like that painting. Oh, I know what you're talking about. Ivan the Terrible holding his son Ivan. It just reminded me of that. But I think it's very interesting that where Tarantino adds in a lot of crudeness and yeah, just fucking toxic masculinity, he does have this very weird tenderness between those two characters yeah mm. but it I, I don't i don't think the juxtaposition of that necessarily is saying something yeah but anyways we'll move on from that the title of the movie yeah where was the reservoir yeah there was where no was reservoir. the reservoir um, where are the dogs so there's a couple of stories one is apparently quentin tarantino visited a production company at some point and noticed a bunch of scripts that were bundled together in a pile that was labeled reservoir dogs one story is it's just a thought of like, yeah, dogs fighting in a reservoir, just like scrappy dogs. Another one, the mo- the funniest one is that <clears throat> while he's working at the video store, he recommended the movie Au Revoir Les Enfants to a customer. But, you know, he's saying in French, Au Revoir Les Enfants. And the customer is like, I don't want to see no reservoir dogs. <clears throat> and that's that's one theory of where that came from. I think either of those are great. I like when titles are pulled like that. And then, you know, Sally Menke, who edited this, would do Tarantino's next six movies. I was going to mention real quick before we get into the discussion, there's a lot of foreshadowing in this movie. Yeah. One of the most notable ones is when they're in the bathroom, Mr. Pink and Mr. White are talking. There are colored bottles in the background on the sinks. And you, uh. see, you see a pink bottle and a white bottle. And then across the sink, across from everybody else, there's an orange bottle, kind of implying that orange is not with the other guys. I didn't pick up on any of that. Yep. Um, Again, the orange balloon. And then at the very beginning of the movie, when they have the conversation about not tipping, and Joe walks in and he's like, who didn't tip? Mr. Orange, Tim Roth, immediately gives up Mr. Pink. He immediately says, Pink didn't do it. And so that's kind of like, oh, he snitched. And then another thing is the orange balloon. Just not really fortunate. I guess it's just kind of like calling to mind like orange, I guess. Quentin Tarantino says, though, the orange, the balloon was unintentional. That it was just naturally there. Interesting. Okay. Damn. Yeah. Which shows you can take meaning from everything. Yeah. yeah. Even if the filmmaker Sometimes didn't intend it. Sometimes the curtain's just blue. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah. Um, okay. For me, one thing that we kind of touched on that I want to bring up again is I love the cinematography of this. Mm-hmm. I love how simple it is. Um, yeah. The staging of that the cinematographer does for yeah. three, four people. Obviously, there's iconic shots of Mr. White standing over Mr. Pink and they're yeah. you know, aiming the guns and then Mr. Blonde appears. Wait, can I, you care if I stop you there? Go for it. I was going to say, well, yeah, I told Mariah this last night, but one thing the cinematographer really liked and focused on was like still photography. So I think he focused a lot on like staging actors in a very still mm-hmm. way. But also, uh, this is for the Breaking Bad fans out there. There's, I think it's in season four. They recreate that shot from Reservoir Dogs where he's pointing the gun at him on the ground. And as you know, it's Mr. White and Jesse Pinkman. And it's a reference to Reservoir Dogs. Oh, shit. Yeah, Makes very sense. cool. I didn't know that either. Yeah. Um, But yeah, uh, like I was saying, with a lot of, you know, Mr. Orange on the ground, the cop in the chair, or Mr. Blonde sitting on the hearse, the staging is just really good. Mm, um, this is true. 
The Speci- mise en scene. Yes. Uh, specifically, like, towards the beginning when Mr. Pink shows up for the first time and Pink and White are off, like, in the back room talking, it's mainly just two shots that they use. There's a long mm. shot of them in a hallway with them down at the end, and then it becomes a medium two shot of them, like, 50-50, like, facing each other and talking, and then it's, like, Mr. Pink, the flashback to, like, him running away when he got out, and he's explaining that to Mr. White. I will say, acting-wise, they're as... An aspiring director, I think I would have done a few things differently. Oh, you think you're better than them? No, but I think for a directorial debut, I think Tarantino could have gotten a little bit better performances out of actors who we've seen give phenomenal performances, specifically Harvey Keitel. Yeah, I noticed a couple of times, specifically with Keitel, where he delivered a line and it felt like awkward and they just really don't like feel the line and it, I don't know, it just feels kind of clunky. There were a couple of that, but the the one moment that I'm thinking of in particular is when Mr. Blonde shows up and Mr. White is just yelling at him. I think once you go in yelling, you don't really have anywhere to go. Mm. And he just yelled for like a minute. And I think he could have gone up and down or started lower to give himself somewhere to go. But when you start yelling, that's that's where you're at. So just like a couple of examples like that, but also like, fuck me, what do I know? Uh, this is a phenomenal directorial debut that like pisses me off that it's like so good. So mm. you know nothing, you know. Jon Snow. It's a Game of Thrones reference. I've never seen it. Anyway, so but I do think you know having seen Kaitel and other stuff, knowing like how good he is, I think I think it was uh, the directing that faltered right there. Okay. A couple of a couple of moments for me. However, obviously, great movie. Yeah. Miles, yeah. what about you? Thank you for asking, Mariah. I liked it. I liked it a lot. It was actually really good. This was your first time seeing this. this was my first correct? time seeing it. Okay. I I had heard of Reservoir Dogs. It was always like my dad, and my brother would talk about like you know the classic movies, uh, and this one would be tossed out. And I was always like, yeah, whatever. It's like where our thou brother. I've also never seen. Um, but everyone's like, oh, that one's really good too. And I'm sure if I watch it, I'll it be is. Like, I'll be like, oh shit, this is good. You can watch it after. This. But Reservoir Dogs, I was definitely like. Because I started watching it and I was making pizza dough during the start of it. And then they get to the place and he's like, hold me like I'm dying. And I was like, okay, I got to I can't do both of these. You were hooked. I was like, I'm in. And then whole movie just watched it. No phone. It was it was right next to me. Not touched for a second. Amazing. So that's how, you know, I wasn't watching another movie on TikTok. That's yeah. how you know it was good. Uh, yeah. It would have absolutely destroyed <laughs> yeah, me if you were like... this movie on TikTok? Tarantino personally would have killed you. <laughs> yeah. Here we go. Actually, that's the Actually, death of cinema. Um, all right. <laughs> I think... I'm going to echo what Mariah said. The mise-en-scene, very good. I think we all the have the same Blocking, opinions. very good. It, it was very artful. Buckets of blood. I'm surprised... He didn't die sooner, Mr. Orange. Yeah. That shit was a lot of blood. It was a lot of blood. But what are you going to do? Is that all? Is that all you got? Uh, I liked it. I didn't pay much attention to the music. Hmm. So any music that there was other than that one song so that played. It's, it's all just licensed tracks. Yeah. There's no score. It's just okay. a soundtrack. Uh, very good. Very good movie. All right. My turn. Recommend it. Yeah. Go. Yeah. Pretty much everything everyone said. Like Mariah said, like Miles said, yeah, I think cinematography is great. A lot of it is just the staging. 
I really like how they put them. I mean, the pose where Mr. White standing over Mr. Pink, that's just like a phenomenal pose. Uh, I also like, yeah, you see, it's fun to see kind of some of the visual style of Tarantino coming through in this movie. You know, of course, we get the trademark trunk shot performances I felt could have been better in some places. Of course, the, some of the really vulgar locker room talk, like, it's not even necessary that I'm like, I can't stand it. It's just like, ah, it's not like my thing, but I still, I still think it's a great movie. I think the structure of it is phenomenal in terms of the nonlinear storytelling. It really grips you. And I feel like the way that they have an intense scene and they cut to a flashback kind of keeps you hanging on. You know, it's like giving you a cliffhanger without ending the story. And also, I know that one of the inspirations for this movie was none other than John Carpenter's The Thing. Because Tarantino Yo. likes the concept of guys stuck in a small space and one of them is not who they say they are. I just want to point out, I am a big fan of single location movies. Yeah. Yeah, like so if you can, films. if you can keep that shit to one location, uh, and I grant you the occasional flashback, that's fine. But single location films, very good. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but yeah, I I like it. You know, yeah, I like the tender moments with Mister White, Mister Pink. I like whenever you can have that sort of dichotomy of like really hard men, and then you know they have this touching moment on the side. I think that's really cool. I think that's all I got to say. Also, uh, yeah, well, you got one more thing to say. I just wanted to say real quick, I love uh, Tim Roth's performance like as he's shot. I think mm-hmm. how he's writhing around, like we don't see that as often in films when people get shot. They're just kind of like, yeah. fuck, I, I like got shot, whining. man. But he's like trying to escape the pain by trying to get out of his own body, which I think is really cool. Also, when Madsen, this is still funny to me every time I've seen it, when he takes the ear and he goes like, hello, into the ear. He talks into the ear. So funny. Yeah. Anyway, Can you yeah. hear that? Yeah. No, we can't go home yet because you had to rate it. Oh, I got to rate it. Uh, also, I want to say there's a lot of, yeah, again, the posing. There's a lot of like specific performance things that I remember. And like one is when Tim Ross shoots Michael Madsen or Mr. Orange shoots Mr. Blonde. He like is holding the gun up and then he drops it and then he brings it back up and then he drops it. And then he does that again later um, when he shoots the woman in the car. Oh, yeah. He, His like, dialect he coach. drops it and then, and then he brings it back up. Yeah. And then when, when Michael Madsen points the gun at the cop, he does this like squirming motion that I, I don't know. I just think is very good. Like the motion. I don't know how he moves. He's trying to dodge the bullet. Yeah. He's trying to like, he's just squirming around. I remember that. I think that's like weird things like that. And certain cadences, I, I doing this the whole movie. But at the end, he's like, Stop pointing that gun at my dad. I don't know. No, he says daddy my too dad. much. Ryan, what do you rate it? I'm going to give this movie eight. I think it would be nine. Eight what? Eight cops in car trunks out of ten. It would be a nine if it, if it weren't for the slurs and I think kind of unnecessary language. Call me a prune whenever. And the main thing for this, first of all, yeah, it's like frustrating how great of a directorial debut that is. But thinking back to just how iconic so many of these scenes are, yeah, yeah, how well we recognize them and how much they've been parodied or just like ingrained in us, I think is is incredibly impressive. Mm-hmm. Again, for a directorial debut. So um, for that reason and just kind of its legacy and all that stuff, I'm going to give it 8 out of 10. 
Nice. Yeah. Nice. Miles? I am going to give it, this is going to be a little weird, 8.75. Let's go with uh, 8.75 men writhing in pain. Oh, no, daddies. That's what I was going to do. 8.75 <sighs> daddies out of 10. Uh, a lot of daddies. It's a lot of daddies. I want to say nine, but nine seems not enough daddies. Seems kind of high. So I'm going to get as close to nine as possible while still remaining to the uh, quarter portions. Yeah. So very good. Very good uh, movie. Yeah. I'll do 8.25 cups of coffee as Steve Bajemi drinks. This is rating as someone who's seen it three times now. If this were my first time watching, I think it would almost certainly be higher. I, because like so much of it I know and I expect to happen. And like it's not a surprise, it's not new to me. You know, I when you're going in and you're like, Oh, who's the cop? I don't know, you know, like what's going on? And the nonlinear time thing is hitting you and you're like, Oh, that's different. Like when it's fresh and new, it'd probably be higher. But now I've seen this and I'm kinda like, eh. It doesn't have the same magic on me as it did the first, you know, go around. All right, let's end this so we can turn on the AC. Uh-huh. Let's do it. It's hot like... For our next episode, we're doing something a little special because although it's not going to be right on the same week, but the next episode will mark just about one year since we started releasing oh, episodes. Oh. Horns. Yeah, can we get air horns, please, editor? Um... So, yeah, we're going to be covering the Blues Brothers. Those dang old brothers, it's got Carrie Fisher. I'm on a mission from God. (laughs) Yeah, I figured it would just be a nice, fun one. I know it's got like a lot of information about it. It's got great music. It's got great performances and cameos. It's just a lot of fun. So I figured we could just have some fun for our one year anniversary episode. Um, So, yeah, that's what we're going to be doing. We're going to get drunk for it? Uh, we might have I'm gonna a get celebratory drink or two. Straight slozzled. I'm trying to get uh, at least a little buzzed during. So yeah, we might sloshed. We might have a couple of drinks in the next episode to kind of celebrate. So I'm gonna sound like Tarantino. <laughs> so I guess uh, tune in and find out what that will sound like as I try to corral these hooligans while drunk. While they have alcohol in them. Sad. They start like trauma dumping. God. Then I will cut that out. <laughs> Listeners. <laughs> Anyway, so that's going to be the next episode. I'm very excited. I think it should be a lot of fun. That sounds very exciting. I'm excited for it. Yeah. If I was a listener, I'd be even more excited. Yeah. But in the meantime, you can follow us on social media. We are on Twitter and Instagram at The Takes Took. And if you want to send us any message, comment, correction, opinion, hypothetical question like we did last episode, please don't hesitate. You can email us at thetakesittook at gmail.com. Um, But until the next episode, stay safe, have fun, watch movies, and uh, snitches, get stitches, and Every dog has his day. Stephen, Mariah, I'm a cop. Bye. I'm sorry. Bye. I'm really glad you told me at this pivotal moment. Bye. (laughs) And now put in gunshot sounds. We gotta kill Miles. Dogs barking. Put it down. Put it down. Someone shut that dog up!